and listeners. This is Taze again. It's been a while since I last recorded a podcast like this. This is Joe. Joe is back. Joe is back, and that's, that's what I wanted to stress. With video this time. With multiple angles of video. So uh, for those who have been following my podcast and my video channel, I know there's few of you because I've been neglecting this little thingy. But Joe is back, and Joe is back because last time I interviewed him, it was one of the more fascinating interviews I've did. <laughs> there were some malfunctions uh, with the video. That has been sorted out, so that means Joe is all the way back. All the way back, yes. Okay. I think, I think that time was also back in London at PHP UK conference. Yep. In 2014, 15? 2015. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. It was a fun time, a good yeah. time there. And we talked about your interesting journey in life, decisions that you've made. No, seriously. Mm -hmm. So let's give you the brief recap <clears throat> because otherwise we'll be referencing to things that you as the viewer and listener are unaware of. Do you, do you do it yourself or do I do the, the elevator pitch? You should do the elevator pitch. I'll do the elevator pitch. Joe is a young and talented developer slash entrepreneur, uh, originally hailing from Lithuania. That is true, yes. He came to Edinburgh, Scotland to, uh, to study. Mm -hmm. Computer University, science. Computer science. Uh, in the meanwhile, also founded one or more companies. Yeah. Uh, did some community engagement, ended up on my radar. We got in touch with each other by attending PHP conferences. Mm -hmm. I learned about his story, about the fact that you're quite ambitious, that you have cool hobbies, yeah. and that you're an all-around cool and tall guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. After that, I've heard about your story that you wanted to move to New York City. Mm -hmm. Quite naively thought that would be an easy thing to do. Or I you did. thought there would be difficulties, but there were more difficulties than you anticipated. Mm -hmm. you saw I thought it was going to be a quick process. A difficult, but a quick process. It wasn't? No. You were homeless for longer than you'd anticipated. Mm -hmm. Homeless, just did some traveling. Yeah, I was basically a digital nomad for over a year. And the plan was to have it to be a digital nomad for X amount of months? How many months? But, well, what was the plan? The plan was to maybe spend a month or two traveling at most. But the longer it went on, it just made no sense to stop doing it. So I didn't even know what the digital nomad was. Or how which, you should do yeah, digital nomading. I don't, like, I don't think anyone at the time was talking about it, which was like, I think in 2014. No one, there was no digital nomads as a thing. I don't think I, 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 I knew that term at the time. But then as I did it, all of a sudden I learned that that's apparently what people do all the time. What were some of the key takeaways from that period of time in your life? Like briefly, a couple of like bullet yeah. point things you've learned? Travel lightly, so bring nothing because you don't actually need anything. Most people bring nothing too much baggage. Now I have a carry-on bag and I never used my massive suitcase in like years. I never check anything, I just bring my own bag. And also, I would say, um, instead, of, instead of spending little time in many locations, go for a long time in one location. Makes sense. Because it takes a few days to kind of get adjusted to the local ways and to just kind of learn things and kind of understand what you should be spending attention. And if you just quickly run through things, if you're following some kind of a tourist guide where it's like, oh, do this, do that, do that, do that, it's not enough time to appreciate things. And not, not appreciate things in like a, 
like uh, in like art way, but actually like it's not enough time to be able like, hey, this is New York City. I've okay, I've seen all the default things. I've seen Times Square. I've seen Central Park. Now what? Like, what are the locals are doing? Like, what are what are the kind of offbeat and path things that people are doing? And that just kind of takes time. So, anytime you travel, I would say, hey, go to one location, spend longer, as opposed to trying to maximize as many locations as you as you're trying to do. What about social interactions, friendships, personal relations? Oh yeah. So that is probably one of the biggest drawbacks of the whole digital nomad way is that it's it's harder to make like long-lasting relationships because you're not in a single place for any long time. So I mean, it's always, you can always find people and you can always find friends and like, but then you have a lot of friends all over the globe and none of them are in the same location as you are for a pretty long period of time. So I would say if, if you get a chance and a lot of, some of the successful people I know who do this now, they travel with their wife or with their husband who so they don't need to they don't need that relationship part because we already have one so they can just do all the things I, I was doing but also have a relationship happening and they, like it makes it makes it a much better experience i think than for Absolutely. just a single person go around the world do that but at the same time you should do it even as a single person because why not it's easier to travel it's much easier to travel if you're just a one person as opposed to having a group of people or even just two people Fast forward a couple of years, you've been through that, you have a visa, you're, done. Yeah. You're, you have a business in the US. Mm -hmm. I know you started out, uh, if I remember correctly, with a toy company trying to figure out, or was just goods, selling goods on marketplaces, specifically on Amazon, and finding out algorithms for pricing and stock and those sorts of things. That's roughly what it is. That, that where you started, back in Delaware? Yeah, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the the whole toy thing was the historical setup of the company. So it used to be a toy company selling toys in physical stores. But then it became uh, like an everything store which sells anything you can think of through the means of marketplaces. Um, and I mean, I can talk forever about... But that's where you learned the world. Yes. I would say yes. Like that introduced me to the U.S. economy and the way things work in the U.S. And, and their, 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 their role marketplaces play in, in this whole realm of e-commerce. So what was the next step? And then since then, I started Marketplace Pulse, which is a business intelligence agency focused on e-commerce. So we try to understand marketplaces and we try to understand e-commerce through data. So there's a lot of interest, both in the US and, and globally, in growing e-commerce, um, like even even here in the Netherlands, I think e-commerce is only 10% of uh, actual retail. Um, and there's a lot of interest in growing it, but what you would realize is that pretty much every country glo uh, globally, all most of e-commerce, most of online retail happens on marketplaces, which in Western Europe and US, it's Amazon. In China, it's Alibaba. Um, Alibaba is also spreading in Southeast Asia and India and other countries. AliExpress, I guess, as well? Like we buy stuff at AliExpress. AliExpress is very big in Russia. It's also very big in um, India, I think, as well, for people who want to buy things into the country. But ultimately, it's uh, a single company, like any, any single company who just sells things cannot grow big enough to support massive countries. And that's why marketplaces exist, because they, a company like Amazon focuses on infrastructure. Uh, you can think of it in, like, 
we're doing the same thing as we're doing in the cloud. We're doing the same thing for physical retail. We're building infrastructure like warehousing, payments, um, uh, ad services, fulfillment, fulfillment uh, in, in, uh, insurance, warehousing. We're doing all that, and everyone else is doing products. Everyone else is working on supply and demand, and that allows Amazon, the website, to grow really big, even though it actually consists of all these random smaller companies. So it's kind of a fascinating world to see, and like a lot of companies, like a lot of countries are now excited because, for example, Amazon is coming to Australia, um, which was not the case until recently. They're coming, I think, at the end of this year or next year, and everyone's freaking out. Yeah, Amazon is not even in Belgium, where I'm from. No. So uh, I even either have to go to UK, France, or Germany. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, Amazon as a company will probably enter all the European countries. Um, for them right now, Belgium is just too small. Uh, too small in the sense of like they need some minimum size of economy to support what they're doing. So building out warehouses, building out websites, all that for a country which only has X amount of size. Yeah, of, of course. But then again, the consequence of that is that local players, Benelux players, could enter that market right yeah. now. And in, in, our, in our area, Ball.com is, mm -hmm. is one of the, the big boys. Yeah. So most of the smaller countries, especially in Europe, have their own little sites. Um, for example, Amazon has recently bought the leading e-commerce website in Dubai to learn about their local e-commerce. Like, they're expanding, but the reason why I'm talking about this is that it's like, as Amazon expands, it allows everyone else to expand as well. And then all these industries get created, which both for selling and infrastructure, which grow with Amazon as Amazon is growing. So what is your angle on this? So you founded a company? Marketplace Plus, right? Marketplace Plus. Pulse, Pulse. So apologies. we, I mean, the angle is that we measure marketplaces. So we look at, um, for example, when it comes to Amazon, we look at how many sellers are selling on Amazon. Um, how well are these sellers doing? What type of products are we selling? What type of categories are we selling in? What type of brands are we selling in? Um, and how is that changing over time? And what does that mean? And what does that mean globally? And what does it mean for sellers themselves? Like what they should be looking out for the future. And then it's kind of, it's, it's in a sense researching um, Amazon, eBay, Etsy, Walmart, other marketplaces as if they were economies themselves. So um, in, the same way, like, in the same way Bloomberg treats um, company, like public, massive public companies and economies and they collect data and they analyze that and they publish about that. We do the same thing, but specifically about e-commerce. And tend to be specifically about marketplaces because in most, again, in most economies, uh, marketplaces are the biggest ones to think about. And there's only so much you can do about like smaller sites, like the one you mentioned. Yeah, ball, yeah, there's there's it, nothing to analyze that in that because there's nothing to measure. No, it's, and and yeah. for marketplaces, we can measure things. For example, we look at uh, one of the one of the core principles about of a marketplace is that um, it has a concept of feedback. So usually, when people buy from eBay or Amazon or or from Etsy, they leave a comment about their purchase experience, and you if you can measure those, you can you can like you can see how many feedbacks are they getting every day, and then how many of them they're getting over time, and and see what that tells you tells you. So, and are you tracking those feedback and trying to get like emotion out of it based on text recognition patterns? We don't do, we do, do emotion, but we look at 
in general positivity or negativity, and then amounts. How does that amount fluctuate over time? And that tells us the sort of sellers which are successful, the sort of products which are successful, etc. Do you sell reports or do you sell analytics? Uh, both. So a lot of our reports come out as articles. For free? Like, yes. So it also has become like one of the most read, I think, and at least one of the most objective kind of blogs slash journals about e-commerce. We write three to four articles a week, usually data-driven. Like, it's kind of like data-driven journalism, which is interesting. And we, we publish those, and I guess we have like mailing lists and all the kind of stuff. But So uh, there's a lot of consumption through that. And then there's, in the back of it, there's very specific things for very specific companies. So one thing feeds the other by gaining yeah. attention and like credibility? We, we are publicly shouting about things we think, we believe in. Like, um, for example, we, we talk about the relationship U.S. e-commerce has with China or U.S. e-commerce has with people making private labeling products in China. Or we recently talked about the growth of fidget spinners, these toys, <laughs> and what that, we think, means for the future of retail and for the future of supply and demand optimization. And we, we keep saying those things, and it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, it's just that's what we think it is. And some people agree with that, and those people who agree with that understand how we look at things and understand why we look at things. And, and understand and your value. Yeah, and then, and then they understand that we know what we're talking about, ultimately. And, um, and then they get more a personalized approach by becoming a client of yours and yes. digging deeper and um, seeing metrics that weren't discussed in yeah, your I mean, like, for example, if you're a hedge fund, our articles to you are not really useful because they're too vague and they're not um, d detailed and specific enough. But they can be if you wanted to. So. Uh, an article is kind of a tasting test. Like, you, this is what we could be doing, but in a vague scale, that's what it is. But like, you, if you want to do, you can actually um, um, talk to us and we can actually do more detail. The data you collect, is that publicly available data? Yes, but so we built infrastructure to kind of extract yeah, the data. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would say Google, Google indexing is trying to build semantic data extraction. Since we focus on a particular field, all we do is semantic data extraction. So it, it's focused on a particular thing. And I would say one thing I would add to the whole data article thing is a lot of people now do content marketing. And I would say almost always it's garbage because they put too much effort on marketing and not enough effort on content. I think we put 99% on content and 1% on marketing. And that's why it almost is content marketing, but it's actually a content on its own. And when you read it, you can trust it because it's not saying like, hey, five tips to make no, a no, million no, dollars no, on no, e-commerce. No, no, no. Like we're writing real things. And I think a lot of startups and a lot of small companies make a mistake of writing blog posts from a content marketing point of view, which is just like bashing out SEO optimized nonsense um, in the hopes that people read them, I don't know. But where, um, where you... Uh... We treat them like we, we, we treat, like we, like I think we even have like journalist standards. Like we, we really care about what we write and like it's real and it's not made up and it's backed up by facts and you can verify those facts. And the people who aren't really attracted by the style of writing aren't maybe the customers you're aiming right. for. Yeah. Like we, we, we like, 
we've been writing enough, but like even people like Wall Street Journal and like USA Today and Inc. Magazine and like even lately BuzzFeed, like they read that and they're like, this is like, this is real. Like it, it's not just some nonsense gibberish, it's actually real content. And that's to me nice because like we are doing something which is achieving multiple goals, but at the same time on its own, it can stand against scrutiny because it's actually real content. It's not just nonsense. So what does the future bring for you? Like you've been, and I should mention this because it's a big deal, you were published in? Yeah, in Wall Street Journal. In? Uh, in Wall Street Journal. In the Wall Street Journal. I did my first little quote. And then I think a week after, I had another one, uh, which was really nice. So what uh, does that mean to you? Like there, there has been a, an effect? You have felt the consequences of yeah. that probably? Once, once, once Wall Street Journal publishes about you, your LinkedIn catches on fire and all of a sudden everyone's, everyone wants to be friends and everyone wants to have coffees and have meetings. Uh, so we'll see what it will bring. But I think in, I can see it being a very important step, one of many hopefully, um, to something much bigger than it is right now. Because it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, it, do, it doesn't matter what you say it is, but like once big publications like Wall Street Journal say that's what you are, all of a sudden, it gains credibility and gains value. Of the right kind of people. Of the right kind of people, um, yes. So that's what keeps you up at daytime, or that keeps you busy during daytime, maybe during keeps daytime. you up at night, but yeah. living in New York at this high, uh, really fast-paced tempo, uh, living the dream, is the American dream, not sure if, if that is the case, but there's other stuff you're involved in as well, I guess. Living yeah. in New York is a city that brings opportunity to you. Mm -hmm. What else is do you do on a on a personal level? Lately, I've been spending a lot of time on cycling. Yeah, I think cycling has lately become like a number one hobby, just because how just because how how easy it is to do. Like all you need is a bike, and you can just go and ride it. There's no like setup; you don't have to fly anymore. Um, so I've been biking probably uh, ten to fifteen hours a week, which is got a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I think it's been some, like 200, 300 kilometers a week uh, of cycling. Not in the city itself, but kind of escape the city as soon as possible to avoid all the traffic. You could be a bike messenger if you want. You could. Or I mean, get killed or, while trying. Yeah. But you kind of escape the city as soon as possible, and then you just bike kind of outside the city. Like it very, New York very quickly goes from a massive collection of people and buildings and skyscrapers to nothingness, so you can just go and bike calmly there. So like from your place, do you just take your bike and drive someplace, or do you take public transportation to some place calmer and then hop no, on your bike? No, I just ride my bike. I mean, I could take the train, uh, but I just, it takes me less than an hour to leave the city. And even that hour is mostly on like a bike path, which is kind of meant for that. There's, like if you think about New York, um, on the west side of it, um, along the river, there's a, there's a bike path. So I just need to get to there. And once, I get, once I'm on that, I can just... That's the bike path you always see in Casey Nice. That's yes. the other, I guess. That's, that's the same through, one. That's uh, the same one. To WTC yep. tree, like World Trade Center tree. Yeah, that it's one is... exactly the same bike Millions path. of people have watched that yeah. one. So the only problem with that is with is all the tourists and all the people walking in. So it's still not incredibly safe. I mean, still... 
it's not just bikes, it's just random yeah. stuff on it. It's the same thing that happens on the Brooklyn Bridge. There's yeah. bike paths oh, there, yeah. but everyone's all. And uh, I noticed that when I was in New York, at the very same thing. And then I noticed, like, I shouldn't be walking here. Yeah. But I think people pay attention. Yeah, to some that. of these bridges have, like, if you're a person, you should be on this side. If you're a cyclist, you should be on this side. But no one actually pays attention. All of a sudden, everyone's mixing in. Um, so, yeah, riding, before you escape the city, I think, to me, people are a biggest concern than cars. Because I, like cars are somewhat aware and they're on the road, so like there's an understanding and a clear separation. Yeah, of but if you you're on a bike path and there's people in it and they're like walking in, yeah, could hurt. Yeah, you because could I break mean, your collarbone. Yeah, because like bikes are pretty fast. So I mean, like even in a city, I can be easily doing 20 miles an hour. Um, that's pretty quick. So mm -hmm. if someone jumps in front of you, there's nothing you can do. Nope, <laughs> nope. So. You'd, you told me that uh, as soon as you, so it's a really dense area, and as soon as you leave that area, it's just a bit more yeah. calmer, rural. What's what's that called? Because I'm aware of the boroughs and the fact that New Jersey is on the west. Um, I don't even know. What, like, what, what happens? What, what's it called? Well, first of all, uh, what, what's south of Manhattan? So first of all, you I I would take a bridge over the river. Yeah. And then that puts me in New Jersey. Yeah, okay, you if go I, westbound. Yeah. But then if I keep going north, I re-enter New York again, which is funny. So basically I go from New York to New Jersey, back to New to York. New York. Um, but New York State, that is. New York State. Europe, not New York uh, State. And I mean, there are, I guess, I mean, there are towns of some kind, but... That are in a county in a, of Yeah, some I mean, sorts. there are all some, some smaller towns, but ultimately most of that way is just... Uh, I don't think it's a highway, it's just like a road, like a 75 kilometer an hour road, like a one lane road, and then you ride along it. Um, especially on the weekends, there's probably more cyclists than there are. And I noticed that it's, there's hills and there's nature, and it's these are hilly. things that you don't associate with yeah. New York City. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, it takes, in a car probably, you, in, in a car from New York in an hour, you can get to some proper mountains they're not actually mountains i mean they're more like hills but they're, let's they're, talk about cars for a minute cars, yes. because you've been racing them but that that's like the next step the first yeah. thing i noticed is people who live in new york city don't really own a car because no. it doesn't make sense because if you want to buy a garage i think you will easily spend a million bucks on sure. buying actually sure. buying a garage and parking is too expensive and it's clogged with taxis and delivery mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you ended up at the Classic Car Club? There was, a, there was a magical place in New York called the Classic Car Club Manhattan, which has been set up now, I think over 10 years ago, by these guys called Mike and Zach. Um, and their idea was that if you live in New York, you cannot own a, a nice, fun car. And even if you did, you wouldn't be using it that much, so why bother? Yeah. And th what they did was they formed a club um, which owns cars um, from classic classic cars like 60s Porsches, like the like the most basic ones, the early ones, to the most modern supercars, um, as far as like some Lambos and Ferraris as well. It's a membership, and then and yeah, and then they have they have a bunch of members. I think it's pretty limited because we only have so many cars, uh, and as a member, you can rent or use those cars. Use or rent, because that's, there's a big difference. Rent. I mean, they, you have to pay. It's technically, yeah, I mean, it's technically a rent. I mean, as a member, uh, you have uh, kind of a balance of points, and then you spend those points. Um, 
on rental cars, on renting these cars. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's almost like car rental place, but I'm, I don't want to call it a rental place because I think it's so much more and it kind of devalues what it, it devalues the car club because it's a collection of people who care about cars and they do events and they do all sorts of things. So like calling them rental cars, I'm like, eh. It's not Hertz, it's not Avis, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's more than that. And I, I mean, when it comes to picking up a car, it's kind of the same process. You have to just say, hey, I want that car, it's how much it's gonna cost you in terms of points. The points, of course, have dollar value, so it's, it's kind of the same thing. And if you run out of points, do you have to buy new ones, or is your turnover, you have to wait until the next? You can always stop them up. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, it's a business for this guy, yeah. right? I mean, you can, always, you can always stop them up. And uh, of course, like depending on a season, in the summer, there's, it, the cars cost more because it's summer. And in the winter, a car costs less because it's the winter and no one actually wants to drive. It's a bit more of an exclusive thing, I guess, because otherwise everyone yeah. in New York would be doing that. Yeah. Well, the, that's why the, it's not a rental place. You can rent cars, even ex, ex, uh, supercars from many of these places. Uh, anyone can rent them. Um, but in this case, they formed a club and they have like a, a limit of how many people they allow to, yeah, to achieve exclusivity and to make sure that the people who drive these cars appreciate them and they don't beat them down. If you go to Vegas and you try to rent a Ferrari, you will soon learn that if you go for like the best possible deal, that Ferrari is absolutely horrible. It's B-Town, probably doesn't even have the power anymore. Like the seats are all run down. Probably an old Testarossa. Yeah, yeah. like even in the new ones, I've yeah. seen some videos, they look absolutely garbage. But in the car club, um, I mean, they're all really nice cars and it's driven by people who appreciate cars and don't like destroy them because especially when it comes to classic car, classic cars, anything like 20 years or, or older, uh, these cars are incredibly fragile when it comes to cooling or just the way they've been treated. They have something, uh, they have one of the more unique cars they have, they have a replica of Ford GT40 from the 50s, from the 60s, uh, which is a replica of a Le Mans winning racer car. It has no traction control, no ABS, no safety, anything. And that's road legal? It is road legal and it can do 200 miles an hour. So, like, <laughs> deal with it. There's a, like, <laughs> you cannot rent these cars usually because there's, like, you will crash one in a tree. It's like, that's what sort of car it is. But like having a club and having somewhat vetted people who understand what they're doing. So how did you, did you end up there? Because um, it's not like you've been living in New York for 20 years. I watched a YouTube video initially, uh, randomly, to be honest. And I saw them and I, I, I remember writing an email to them to the, and then this guy Adam replies and he's like, hey, maybe you should be a member. And that, that was it. Like, that was not so they, they scrutinized you a bit? They looked into your... I don't, I don't, I don't think there was much scrutiny. Um, I mean, we talked about what I've driven before and I guess there was some kind of a face control test. And then I remember just before I joined, they were like, well, we, <laughs> because it's the US, they're like, we have to check that you can drive manual, that you can drive stick, uh, which, I mean, I don't know if you've been, if you haven't been to US, most people don't know how to drive stick. Luckily, we're um, Europeans. Yeah. We're so stick driving they people. gave me uh, this E30 M3, which is like the first generation M3, which are now super valuable. And it was, I remember, f like fully tracked, decked out, like it had a roll cage in it, like bucket seats, like these crazy bucket seats. Uh, like a massive winch, uh, massive mirror. And I remember 
sitting in it, like in New York traffic, in basically a track-ready race, like racer car. With the exhaust all yeah, cleared out. Yeah, exhaust and we drove like a, a bunch of loops, and he's so he's like, okay, I guess you can drive stick. And it, like once I actually like, it had, since it's an old car, like synchros got out of sync, so like I couldn't shift the gears, but eventually I did shift them. But yeah, that was that was I guess, part of the phase control. Um, I don't think they have like as strict requirements, and at this point, I think it's mostly member referrals. So they don't have a lot of capacity to allow new members in. So usually the people who are allowed in are the people who know someone. Yeah. So there's like a... Yeah, there was also a Casey Neistat video on that. Yes. Maybe I should include some yes. of the footage yeah. and overdub this. Mm -hmm. I think that would give them yeah. lots so of Casey attention. So Casey Neistat, I don't think he's a member. I mean, he's, they, they he's gave just him, a friend. They gave him a car, of course, but... Uh, but the exposure they're getting for that is huge. Yes. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, uh, they haven't been doing a lot of marketing since they don't need to. No. Uh, they have no trouble finding people. So for them, it's just kind of whatever. But over uh, lately in New York, they've over the last year, they've expanded to a massive big new location, which means I guess they're trying to attract more people who not necessarily want to drive the cars, but want to go to events because we do a lot of events. Like recently they had um, uh, Lucid, Lucid Electric, which is a new supposed competitor for Tesla cars. It's a thousand horsepower electric car. I mean, it looks like, I mean, it's, it's a four-door sedan. It looks completely normal, but it has insane horsepower. So yeah, Joe, you're obviously interested in biking, <laughs> in fast cars. You love New York City. Yeah, it's great. You love IT, and I think you found your, wouldn't call it the niche because it's a very mainstream thing, like, Adding right. value to e-commerce or like yeah. companies who want to get invested in e-commerce. Any final advice for our viewers here? I would say always say yes to opportunities to do something you probably shouldn't be doing. So if someone comes to you and they're like, you should do a bike race uh, on, a, on, a, on a bicycle, you should say yes. And that's what I did this year. I did my first 100 mile, 160 kilometers cycling race. If someone says, yeah, you should do a racing thing in a car say yes, and that's what it is as well. If someone comes to you and they're like, well, you should do, uh, try to climb mountains. If, if there's people who wanna add you to their group and kind of wanna take you on their own journey, always say yes, because you will immediately go from having no experience in whatever that thing is to having some experience but usually years worth of experience because they took you with them and they shared everything. And even though, even though it seems like that thing they're taking you, that journey they're taking you onto, has no relevance to your business yeah. or to your interests. It always ends up that way. It always ends up that way. I could, I could be the judge of that. I had some opportunities. Other people say, why are you pursuing this? This has no, this is just a waste of time. And in the end, yeah. always, there's always something you should, like, You should never, um, you should never try to decide if whatever you're gonna do will have value. You can only connect points looking back. Yep. Never connect points in the future. Sometimes the most random things you do lead, will eventually lead you to insane things in the future. But if you don't do them because you think they're not going to do, you will never find out. And that's a nice way to so end this say yes. podcast. Say yes, look for opportunity, even if it doesn't seem that relevant. This man can be the judge of it. Uh, follow Joe, I will link his social details and his Marketplace Pulse link on there. Thank you for checking it out. I know it's been a long time, but there's more to come. Thank you very much. Thank you.